Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we pay tribute to the late Harry Belafonte by bringing you his words. As you know, Harry Belafonte, singer, actor, civil rights campaigner, died at his home in New York City on April 25th, 2023. Our sympathy goes out to his family and other close acquaintances. There is so much I could say about Mr. Belafonte. Indeed, much has been said about him since his death, but I thought the best tribute I can give to him was to bring you his words, to share with you a speech that is generally not available. I attended the 50th anniversary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee Conference that was held on April 15th through 19th at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. 50 years earlier, SNCC was founded at Shaw University. By the way, that was in 2010 that I went to the 50th anniversary um, conference. SNCC historically is referred to as the shock troops of the civil rights movement. I got permission to record as much of the conference as I could, including the speech given by Mr. Belafonte. Today, we bring you his powerful and still very relevant words. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has notified Congress the U.S. could default on its debt as early as June 1st if lawmakers do not raise or suspend the nation's borrowing power before then and avert what could become a global financial crisis. House Republicans want cuts in spending to raise the nation's debt and allow further borrowing. They passed a bill, and Monday, Senate Leader Democrat Chuck Schumer announced that chamber will hold a hearing this week on the legislation but much of it is likely dead on arrival. President Joe Biden speaking at an event to mark Small Business Week Monday blasted the Republican efforts that would gut much of the president's climate change and social services programs. Threat by the Speaker of the House to default on the national debt is off the table. For over 200 years, America has never, ever, ever failed to pay its debt. And as a result, one of the most respected nations of the world we pay our bills, and we should do so without reckless hostage-taking from some of the mega-Republicans in Congress. Biden has invited four congressional leaders to a May 9th meeting at the White House to discuss the debt ceiling. 
Ethics at the Supreme Court is a topic of a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing today. It comes amidst new reports. Conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has received lavish gifts from right-wing mega-donor Harlan Crow, who also purchased properties belonging to Thomas and his family in a transaction worth more than $100,000 Thomas never reported. Another report from a whistleblower says the wife of Chief Supreme Court Justice John Roberts made more than $10 million over an eight-year period working for legal firms, some who had cases before the high court that went unreported. Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy has reintroduced the Supreme Court Ethics Act in the Senate to create a code of ethics for the high court and spoke ahead of the hearing this morning, saying he had no idea how far conflicts of interest at the Supreme Court have been. The most obvious, stunning, brazen conflict of interest you can imagine individuals and companies that appear before the court sending money quietly and privately into the pockets of Supreme Court justices. What is so stunning to me is that we can't all agree easily that this is out of bounds, right? Not everything in Washington, D.C. has to be left versus right. That bill is likely to gain any headway as Republicans control the House. Chief Justice Roberts declined a request to testify at the hearing today. A closed-door summit on Afghanistan has ended in Qatar without any formal acknowledgement of the Taliban-controlled government. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres attended the summit and blasted the Taliban's repression of women, including the latest move to bar them from working for nonprofits and the United Nations. He warned the move will push the nation further to the brink of a humanitarian crisis. 97% of Afghans live in poverty. Two-thirds of the population, 28 million will need humanitarian assistance this year to survive. Six million Afghan children, women and men, are one step away from famine-like conditions. The vast majority of our personnel providing vital assistance are Afghan nationals, and many are women aid workers. The current ban on Afghan women working for the United Nations and national and international NGOs is unacceptable and puts lives in jeopardy. This is a grave violation of fundamental human rights. The Taliban's continued repression of women barring them from attending schools has isolated Afghanistan from much of the world and relief funding many there desperately need. The Taliban did not attend the UN meeting. On May Day yesterday, known as International Workers' Day, rallies were held around the world, including in France, where people struck against unpopular pension reforms. In South Korea, rallies for better wages and workers' rights at the Capitol saw the largest May Day since the COVID-19 pandemic. In the UK, nurses staged a day strike, and in Turkey, people were arrested for rallying for workers' rights in Istanbul. Actions also took place in major cities in the U.S., including San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Catherine Carly has more. If you believe in justice, you have to believe in economic justice and the right of workers to form a union and to negotiate decent contracts. 
Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont congratulates workers from the Ben & Jerry's flagship store in Burlington as they announce their intent to form a union. On this International Workers' Day, rallies took place across the U.S. in support of the essential workers who keep the economy running. 2022 was a strong year for the labor movement, with some 200,000 more workers gaining union representation. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. Today, we pay tribute to the late Harry Belafonte by sharing his words with you. Mr. Belafonte, in addition to his support for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement generally, he helped to fund the founding of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and he also supported the day-to-day operations of SNCC in Mississippi. Let us go now to hear the speech Harry Belafonte gave in 2010 at the SNCC 50th anniversary conference in which he challenged the audience. Here is Harry Belafonte. Chuck, I've been doing this for 60 years. (laughs) I've been through a lot for SNCC, but nothing popped my having to stand here yesterday and listen to Chuck McDoo saying I'm climbing Jacob's ladder. (laughs) And now after 10 decades of performing before audiences all over the world, he's now decided to tell me how to use a microphone. (laughs) I'm forever humbled by you, Chuck. There are many delights in having come to this summit. Most of them are human delights. Looking into the faces of so many people whom I have known so well and for so long, and to be able to see so many of them standing so strong. But also it's all the faces I've never seen before, especially those that we would call the youth. It is good to see that SNCC endures. It's good to know that there is a family that is still curious about those of us who were there once doing the things that we did and them now turning to us wondering whether or not we will be able to pass on to them the wisdoms that we have acquired, to discuss the mistakes that we made in our time, and to be able to help them forge a path for our future. There are some things that are a little askew. There are some things that trouble me. In the time that I've been here, there has been no small demonstration of the fact that there's still great intellectual capacity. I've listened to many a wise man and woman stand up and speak and say eloquent things. Unfortunately, most of what they've had to say lingers and dwells in nostalgia, and we're having great reflections on what used to be. 
I had hoped that this particular 50th anniversary would be an event filled with so much fire in the belly, so much passion about where we are and where we have to go, that I would have to every five minutes run outside to catch some fresh air, to keep up with the energy in the rooms that I have been privileged to visit during the discourse so far. I'm saddened at the fact that most of what I've been hearing is mostly about what was and how well we did it. We all know what was. We all know how well we did it. The question is, who's talking about what is and how badly we're doing it now? I had hoped that out of this gathering on the 50th anniversary, we would have left here with some marching orders. We have left here with some grasp of what it is that we have to do to turn this sucker around. I had thought that perhaps it was because we had somehow lost our sense of moral purpose. Maybe somehow that which drove us once got lost along the way and we were in a search for our moral center. Because politics without morality is really tyranny. And one of the things that made our cause so righteous was its moral center, was its moral purpose, was how we envisioned what was happening to us and what we had to do to change it. That was key to almost every leader's bag of tricks. It certainly was the most powerful tool in Dr. King's legacy, and certainly almost everything SNCC did. You'd always find moral purpose at the center of what it was that we did. And that moral purpose baffled the enemy. He did not know what to do in the midst of our onslaught because we were morally so strong. Well, we've lost a lot of that. And if we haven't lost it, it has become so buried in our daily menu that we hardly speak to the larger moral issues that face our time. And I think that one fact is what has done more than anything else to distance us, those of us who came from that struggle in our relationship to the young people today. They do not understand where sits the moral purpose of our daily lives. They do not understand the value systems we seem to capitulate to. They do not seem to understand what it is that we're talking about when we cannot talk about the things with great clarity that affect their lives and their daily experiences. Who speaks to that? Who daily gets up and speaks to that with passion and with clarity and the willingness to pay the price that we must pay in order to put this country 
on course. In August of 2005, I'd just come back from South Africa and a meeting with Nelson Mandela and some African leaders talking about the future of Africa and its youth. When I arrived, I was in my hotel getting ready to change for the next event when I saw on the television screen a breaking news story. And it caught my attention because the image that flashed upon the screen was that of a five-year-old child, a five-year-old little girl down in Florida being arrested in her classroom by three white police officers who had thrown her across the desk and was handcuffing her. And on the face of this child was this vision of enormous terror, her sense of abandonment, her sense of loss, her sense of fear, all written in that one moment. And these white police officers standing over her and no one there to hold her, to hug her, to try to soothe her pain and show her a better day. None of this existed. And I was caught with how immoral this picture was. What had we come to? I said to myself, I thought I was involved. I thought I knew pretty much what was going on, but I'd never seen a five-year-old child being handcuffed and eventually shackled by white police officers in Florida. And when I looked around for some answers, I finally wound up talking to a young woman from California by the name of Constance Rice. Connie Rice is an attorney, a woman of enormous credentials, and she is in the criminal justice movement. She's a power to be reckoned with in California and I called Connie and I told her of this visual moment, of this experience. And I said, I fail to, to understand and to comprehend this. What is going on here? Is this a common experience or is this something new? She said, it has not yet reached an epidemic, but it is critical. And it's across the length and breadth of this nation. Hundreds and hundreds of children below the age of 10 have been consistently incarcerated, have been consistently handcuffed, and then she began to run through a litany of cases that supported that fact. And I said to her, what are we doing about it? And she said, we're obviously not doing very much. And I said, well, then I think it's time for us to shake this thing up a bit. And for the first time in my life, I dared to issue a call. I've attended a lot of meetings. I've come to a lot of places when people have called for my service or my support, and I've always gone willingly. But this was the first time I ever called a meeting, and I called it the gathering of the elders. And there was no one who appeared at that gathering in Atlanta whom you would not know. The list was vast popular profile, ministers, politicians, civil rights leaders, 226 all gathered in Atlanta in the hotel. 
the gathering of the elders to talk about the conditions of our children and what they were facing. And the cameras were rolling from the beginning to the end. And one speaker after the other got up and spoke with passion and clarity and uh, yielded one statistic after another, proving that there was no ignorance among them about what was going on. And as we went into the day and on into the early part of the next day, I began to slowly realize that uh, not much was going to be yielded from this gathering. I began to understand that what needed to be done was not going to be nurtured in that room. That although they all had credentials, and we all had reason to praise them and to honor them for what they had done in the past, they seemed to be completely oblivious as to what is going on with the present while they were so busy running around being important, running around taking care of their own private little turf, making themselves popular, rushing to get and to command the press as they spoke to issues that were irrelevant to human suffering and to human need. And as this day dwindled by, I waited to hear from them and I heard nothing. And not yielding to this reality, the thing I thought that I had to do next was to perhaps call the gathering of the young. There perhaps would lay the key to resolve. And so I called Connie and I said, I want to talk to some of the young men and women in the Bloods and the Crips. I'm coming to California. I had known some of them from before, working with them on the issues of incarceration and injustice. And so we picked Epps, Alabama, and almost 300 young men and women of color came to Epps, Alabama to sit among black farmers in a rural area. They hosted us, and I picked Epps, Alabama because the cell phone doesn't work down there. The closest bar is about 50 miles away. So I knew I had them cornered. But I didn't need to worry about that because for three days these young people spoke truth to power. They spoke truth to power in ways that were reminiscent of what early Snickers did, what early people did in the days of CORE and the youth divisions of the NAACP and SCLC, many of whom were their age, sitting here now as elders. What a journey. And when these young men and women spoke, the more they spoke, the more I understood how much in need they were of the history of SNCC and those of us who had come from the past that could give them bits of wisdom and help guide them into the struggles that they were to face. And as we talked, I discovered that in the midst of all this violence, and stuff that they had experienced in their communities, they hardly knew one another. They didn't even know each other living in the same communities. And so I said, there's some deep grassroots work that has to be done here. First of all, we got to start with knowing who we are.
who are you? And when they asked me what was the agenda, I said, I don't know. I really think that the agenda here with you is to find the agenda. Because there have been millions of agendas in my past life, and they've all been available to you, but for whatever reason, they've bypassed you. You've not been able to access them. You've not been able to hold on to them. So let's sit here together while you struggle and you tell me what you think it is that you need in your time to do, to make the kind of difference that we had to struggle with in our day when we sought to forge our own truths because the elders of our time failed us as well. Not all, as all do not now. But something went askew. And until we seized the young people, seized the high ground to begin to move along the struggle and the agenda and to rebel in the ways in which we did, not much was going to happen. Our leaders from the past have gotten soft. They're having a lot of cocktail afternoons at the White House, sitting down discussing the ins and outs of tricky legislation, quoting philosophers and admiring one another in our wisdom or our absence of it as we do now and so these young people began to say well where do we start I said start with yourselves know each other and while you discuss this problem of knowing each other think about those whom you have set out to destroy all the Latinos in California who were daily murdered by black young men. And all the black young men who were daily murdered by Latinos who don't even know each other. Who have never sung one another's song. Who have never stood long enough to hear each other's pain. Let's start with visiting one another in our different communities. So these hundreds of young people from Epps, Alabama, then went on to Santa Cruz to meet with the Latino gangs. And there were the blacks sitting with the gladiators and the browns up in Northern California. And after we had a long few days of chit-chat and exchange of ideas and thoughts, we moved on to Onondaga, home of the Native American tribes, and had us talk with the indigenous about their experiences with violence and their experiences with injustice and the prison system. And that group, once they had become rooted in some sense of purpose and one another, then moved on to meet with the young white poor people down in Appalachia. And they stayed for many days in the midst of young white men and women who were suffering, who were feeling the same anguish that black youth were feeling, Hispanic youth were feeling, and Native American youth were feeling. They found this commonality in one another. And then, last but not least, we went on to the Asian Pacific community. We went among the, the Asian gangs, some of the most complicated cultures I've ever witnessed. But they all came together, and they decided to call themselves the Gathering. They never incorporated they never went out and got legal title. They just called themselves the gathering. What do you do? I belong to the gathering. And what is the gathering doing? And then they began to, to recite chapter and verse what they were doing in their communities. 
But what was agreed was that no one could belong to this little movement we were igniting unless you were rooted in community action, unless you had some community-based work you were doing. So everybody came to the table with a story. Everybody came to the table with a sense of purpose. And then came my greatest dilemma. I cannot tell you how often I reached out to fellow Snickers who were just a little too busy. Fellow Snickers who were just a little too busy to be able to come to pay attention and to give instruction and to help guide these young people who were desperately in need of our history and the knowledge of who we were and what they should be doing and how we could help them do it. And they were around rich black men and rich black women. And I went around everywhere to those who were of privilege in this country and I saw them wholly shallow in the use of their lives and the use of their platform and the use of their base. But the gathering prevailed. They held together. They scrubbed and they gleaned pennies from all over the place to continue to stay the course. I'm glad to say that some of them are here today. And I'd like to acknowledge the chair of the gathering, a young woman from California who will speak tomorrow. Her name is Carmen Perez. Please, Carmen, stand up. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and you're listening to a series we have been doing on the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We're going to take our station break. When we return, we're going to hear more from singer and civil rights campaigner Harry Belafonte. He spoke at the 50th anniversary conference of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Gate, away 
and that song by the great Bernice Johnson Reagan from 1965, Soon My Work. And of course, Bernice uh, was also herself a civil rights icon. She came out of the Atlanta movement of SNCC and um, a co-founder of the Freedom Singers and Sweet Honey in the Rock. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check us out on our website, uh, sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. And we're also on SoundCloud. Look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in South Carolina. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our listeners on the island of Puerto Rico. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find our handle at So True Radio. We now return uh, to hear from the singer, actor, civil rights campaigner, Harry Belafonte, speaking at the 50th anniversary conference of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. What happened to us? I sat down day after day here, or panel after panel, listening to these intellectual bits of trickery talking about what's going on and how eloquent they were, how admiringly we could listen to them. And yet I could find not one thing that was said that was instantly applicable to the pain and the anguish that's crushing our planet today. I don't hear much about what's going on with incarceration and us moving to tear down the walls of oppression around the issues of the prison system. hear much about the wisdom that we've acquired through the years of what's going on in Africa with the millions of women who suffer in the Congo who are being raped and who are being tortured, who are being used as fodder. I don't hear much talk about the kids running around in the child armies of the African continent coming out of the lips and the mouths of organizations that are blackened in this country saying they're taking care of business. Where is the dialogue? Where is the passion around those issues? Where is the protest against those Afro-Germans? I wish there are hundreds of thousands who recently got burned down in Dresden while neo-fascists and skinheads put them in a building and torched them and danced in the streets while they watched men and women of color burn to death. Where is our voice? Why are we so soft? How can we be so complacent? How can we service ourselves with just enough rhetoric, with just enough sound to make us think we're doing something, when in fact the enemy is having the greatest harvest they've ever had? Do you see them? Do you see how bold they are? Do you see how arrogant they are? Do you see how racist-driven they are? Do you see what they're doing and how cleverly they're doing it while we sit here and worry about what the Democrats may or may not do? Where are we? Who are we talking to? And what are we talking about? We should not leave this meeting. We should not leave this gathering, this 50th anniversary of SNCC, without coming out here with some passionate idea of what we should be out there going and doing uh, about the, the predicament in which we find ourselves. Yes, 
I'm proud that Barack Obama is president. I'm proud that we could have lived long enough to see America stumble into some place it hardly expected to go. But when I look at the agenda and I look at what is going on with governance, I find nothing that speaks to the issue of the poor. I find nothing that speaks to the issue of the disenfranchised. And I find a lot of people rushing for cover anytime you dare criticize Barack Obama. Well, I don't find any particular joy in running around criticizing black leaders. I had no choice when I spoke out on Colin Powell. I spoke out on him because he lied to the nation. He lied to the nation and led us into another immoral moment when he helped create the arena and gave validity to the idea that we could invade Iraq. I had to speak out. I couldn't wait for the committee to get together to pass the proposal to come to a conclusion as to whether it was right or wrong. I knew I was going to take a hit, but I've been at bat so often, I can see the pitch coming. Sometimes I swing and miss. But so often it's so sweet when I watch it go over the fence. <laughs> this gathering here, this 50th anniversary, should have been the best wake-up call America's had in a long time. It's Snick that made the call. It's all the mighty men and women who had the guts and the courage and the power to face death and to face pain and to face all the negative things that we had to face in our time to make it happen. And we walked through it and we made it happen and we were successful. The question is, where did we capitulate? Where did we turn in the road that took us off course? Why can't our children find us? Why can't they hear us more clearly? What are we so busy doing that we can afford to abandon them and then have the arrogance and the nerve to accuse them for being lost? I'm going to be here for the rest of the time. I will hang in here to see how this thing winds up. It meant a lot to me that I could come to the 50th anniversary of SNCC. I don't think I'll see another 50. I would like to, but uh, the Creator has other plans. I feel it every day. Getting up for me is a privilege and it's an opportunity to take a look at the calendar of events and say, what didn't I do yesterday that I can do today? And if I miss doing it today, how much time is left tomorrow? But can I get on with it? We have the most powerful culture in the world, in the hip-hop culture. I know it. I'm a student of it. When Africa Bombarda and Melly Mel and all of them got together in the South Bronx 
and put the graffiti art together and put the breakdance together and put the rap songs together. What a great moment for black America and for all of America. Our youth had risen up in the midst of their own pain and degradation and spoke out with enormous force and with great clarity and magnificent poetry about the conditions they were facing. And they became deeply self-dependent. And they were moving along the way until somebody heard the jingle. And once they found out that there was money in them, their hills, capitalism moved in and broke havoc. They co-opted this culture and they let us, our young men and women off to places where they began to drown themselves in gold chains and intellectual depravity. They began to sing things that dishonored us. They began to denounce themselves and their families and their women and their history. And we all stood by and watched it. I cannot imagine in our day any such thing going on and there not being outrighteous rage expressed all over the place. No one would have dared speak against black women the way hip-hoppers did in the recent past and got away with it. And what did we do? We didn't examine carefully what was at stake. We condemned the song rather than the environment that created the kind of lyrics we listened to. We put our kids down. We let them feel like they were valueless because they dared embrace this kind of music. The way parents did back in the days when I first embraced jazz. What are you listening to? When I first embraced the blues, what are you listening to? The kind of criticism that came when I put on my peg pants and my shiny shoes and went to the Savoy Ballroom to do the Lindy Hop looking the young ladies up and down. We let a lot go by. We lost vision. And then I woke up one day and I found that this hip-hop culture was the most powerful cultural force on the face of the earth. I woke up and all over China, I found Chinese rappers. In Japan, I found Japanese rappers. In the favelas of Brazil, and in Venezuela, and in Bolivia, and in Jamaica, and in Cuba, and everywhere I went, hip-hop was the top of the game. And a lot of young men and women were struggling to come together around a more solid core of how to use the power of this culture. And where were we, those who could validate what they were doing and help bring guidance and light and insight and encourage them to make their art more political, to make their art more socially conscious and to speak in more glowing terms about who they were. We've missed a lot. And what defies me is the fact that I don't hear this central to any discourse I've had the privilege to sit in since I've been here. I don't know what's to come. I'm going to be still around listening. But I would hope that somewhere in all of this, we become far more self-critical 
we become far more self-analytic and we begin to say, what have we missed? And more importantly, why did we miss it? What got in our way? Yes, I understand a lot of things. I was part of what happened. When black people in this country got the right to vote, the next big question after that right came was, what do we vote for? And who do we vote for? And people could only vote for what they knew and what they trusted. And who was that? They were the leaders that came out of the civil rights movement. So these mighty leaders that came out of the movement had to now move to the next level of battle. They had to take on a whole set of obligations for which most of them were not really prepared. They were courageous and they stepped in to become legislators and to write law and to do battle with those who had so co-opted this country. They had a fierce time of it, but they had to go. And going, they left a space. And that space was not adequately filled with those who could take up the challenge that they had left behind. Many of our young men and women went off to take advantage of the new economic horizon. They went off to become economists and to take positions in capitalistic America. And they went in with the promise that once they got into these positions of power, they would not forget home base. They would not forget from whence they had come. They would not forget those whose shoulders they stood on to become what they became. But that promise did not hold long. They forgot very quickly. And now in many ways, they become the very evil that we set out before to destroy. And we constantly run to them to pay homage. We become beggars without conscience. We slither along to our wealthy black brothers and sisters and say, I beg you for a thousand here and for a thousand there. My mother didn't eat. My kids are not in school. I don't have no job. And they say, well, we'll take care of you later. We have to fix the banks first. We have to fix the Wall Street. And uh, we have to follow what Barack Obama says because he's got his eye on the sparrow. Who's the sparrow? I love the young man. I pray for him. I really do. I want him to make it. But there's only so much we can surrender in having that wish and having that prayer. We have to stand strong. We have to stand up and say, no more. Not another black child should die from the gun of a racist police officer. Not another Hispanic kid should die from a gun in the hands of some distraught black youth from across town. No more prisons should be built in this country, making the prison industrial complex the most powerful population on earth. Not another Sunday should go by where the minister who stands in the pulpit does not speak strongly and profoundly to the rape of black people, to the rape of black women, and to understand the extent to which they themselves pimp off the poor. There's a lot of work to be done. 
So when I came here, I came with a sense of expectation. I came with a hope that I'd be hearing something about tomorrow, something about retrieving, something about coming together under some mighty banner of possibility and making something happen. I would hope that nobody here is offended by anything that I've said. Call it tough love. Call it history. I've been around a long time, and I was weaned by the best. Dr. Du Bois was my tutor. Paul Robeson was my mentor. Eleanor Roosevelt was my universal experience. She held me, she guided me, she instructed me. And then Dr. King one day called and said, I need to talk to you, you don't know who I am. And there, when we finally met this young man who was two years younger than I was, presented himself and I listened to him transfixed in the basement of the Abyssinia Church in Harlem. And at the end of our discussion, I knew I'd forever be in his service and I understood the perils that we would face, but I admired him. And then through him, I got to know Ella Baker. And in getting to know Ella Baker, I got to know Fannie Lou Hamer. And through Fannie Lou and Ella, I got to know SNCC and all the young people. And I got to find out how to use money and how to use platform and how to use my little personal zone of power. And I enjoyed every inch of the walk. It was a glorious place to be. And it is still a glorious place to be. I just think we got to get off it. Wake up. Let's get it on. We have been lazy too long. We've missed the boat. Let's make another one. Let's make this thing work. Let's lead America to the place we know it has to go. If it is the last thing Dr. King ever said to me, and this is no, this, this is no trickery, this is no statement that isn't rooted in truth. He came from New Jersey, was the last meeting we had at my home before he went down to Memphis. We were having a strategy session, as we always did. Before every great moment, when we made a new thrust, we met with the Northern forces to make sure we understood the battle plan, to make sure we had the resources, to make sure the people who were going to get arrested would be covered financially so that no child would languish too long in jail and keep black mothers upset. All those things were taken care of in great detail by remarkable men and women who were thinkers. But on this particular day, Dr. King came in and he seemed deeply disturbed. And I said, what's the matter, Martin? He said, you know, I just came from Newark where I've met with some of the young brothers and their commitment to violence overwhelms me. And they, they and I have so much in common. I understand them. I just wish I knew how to make them understand me a little better. Let them understand the power of nonviolence. And I failed to do that. And I'm sorry for it. And I said, you know, I've come, I've come to a conclusion. I've come to believe that we fought for so much and we are going to gain a lot. But I'm afraid that in our integration movement, we're integrating into a burning house. And I never understood the power of that rather prophetic remark, that metaphor. We're integrating into a burning house. 
And as we sat in the room quietly reflecting on that thought from our leader, the question was asked, then what would you have us do if that be the case? And he said, we're just going to have to become firemen. We're just going to have to become firemen. And I understood him much later when I saw what George W. Bush and those years did to this country, how much was stolen from us, how much was co-opted, what deep mischief that arrogance has led us into, that we can hardly extricate ourselves from the depths of its degradation. But here we are, and we can become firemen, and we should become firemen. Because Dr. King said, and Reverend Lawson said it just the other day, the truth of the matter, from a moral perspective, the only forces in this country that can lead America from its abyss of darkness and moral thought are the black people in this country and the poor. We are charged with that responsibility. And so far, we have failed to carry out that mandate. We have to get off this soft play. We have to understand like a Polish worker once said in the early years of the immigrants coming to this country, a Polish worker wrote this verse, and he said, Calculate carefully and ponder it well, and remember this when you do, that my two hands are mine to sell. They made your machines, and they can stop them too. And until we understand that we have the responsibility to stop the machinery of oppression and do it fully and completely, we will have surrendered to the enemy for the foreseeable future. We have got to stop them from being able to live so uh, uh, graciously off our struggle and our pain. They're too comfortable with our suffering. We're out of time. I'd like to thank the organizers of SNCC's 50th anniversary conference, as well as the SNCC Legacy Project, which I hope all of you will support. I would also like to thank Jose Benavides, who helped with today's show, as well as Gary Baca, our engineer. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. For the rest of the week, you will hear special Sojourner Truth programming as I will be on a much needed vacation. And the following week, you will hear a new lineup during the time you usually would hear Sojourner Truth. When I return from vacation in mid-June, it will no longer be as a full-time staff member at KPFK doing four shows a week. Instead, I will go back to where I started at Pacifica, at KPFK, doing one show a week out of KPFK on Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m. Pacific time. I want to thank the staff and volunteers at KPFK and other Pacifica flagship and affiliate stations. But most importantly, you, the regular Sojourner Truth listeners who have supported our show over the years. Please be assured that Sojourner Truth will continue to be heard on the Pacifica airwaves with a once-a-week show. And, of course, on a personal note, I will continue my local, national, and international work 
for a world that prioritizes the caring of people and the rest of the natural world over war and profit. Be well and safe. Take good care. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you for listening.